This is episode 40 of the Swallier Pride podcast, and on today's episode, we have Dr. Madison Mocht. He is a pulmonary and critical care physician practicing in Denver, Colorado. He trained at the University of Colorado, where he serves as a volunteer clinical faculty member and studied the relationship between dysphagia and critical illness. He cares for his patients and their families in the intensive care unit. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hey guys, welcome back for another episode. I'm super excited for this episode today. This is really good. I met Dr. Macht at DRS a few, when was that? everything blurs together a few weeks back, um, but just such a nice guy. And it was great to, that I'm so glad DRS had somebody like him there. Um, and I don't, don't mean to sound funny when I say this, but not like, you know, throwing research at us. Essentially, it was just a really good conversation about how to treat patients and appropriate, you know, patient-centered care. And I really, really appreciate that. So I'm so excited for you guys to hear this episode today. And I wanted to mention that next week, uh, May 15th, we have our free webinar for the Medical SLP Solution members. And we have Julie Huffman, the esophageal dysphagia queen herself, will be presenting. So this webinar is registered for ASHA CEUs. It's next Wednesday at May 15th. If you miss the live recording, or if you miss the live airing, I guess, <laughs> is that the word? Um, it is recorded, so you can catch it on the website after. So head to... Uh, you can go to medslpsolution.com to sign up, or you can go to bit.ly, bit.ly forward slash esophageal dysphagia to get signed up for that webinar. That is next Wednesday, free for all medical SLP solution members, and it is for ASHA CEU. So we just got finished doing a, a Julie helped us with a three-part uh, series on esophageal dysphagia. So talking about signs and symptoms and the role of the SLP, and then also what you know, assessments we should be ordering for these patients. I know that I get caught up in just kind of recommending the general generic GI consult. And, you know, I think we've all had our horror stories of just sending the patient for a GI consult and then the GI sends them for a test that had nothing to do with what we were originally suspecting. So, uh, you know, I think it's can, can be kind of a real waste of healthcare dollars and everybody's time. And especially if it's our frail elderly patients, you know, it's so difficult to get them out to these appointments. So I think the more we can kind of help to hone in on what specific test we think that this patient needs and make those appropriate recommendations, I think is only going to go so much further for our profession and help to, you know, really establish that authority that I think we deserve. So um, that's my spiel about <laughs> esophageal dysphagia this week. So head to MedSLPSolutions.com to get signed up and be a member, and we would love to have you. And we also have weekly resources that are blind peer-reviewed by university professors every week that come out, as well as the monthly ASHA CEU webinars. Next month, we will have Megan Sutton talking about cognitive communication disorders for our webinar. Um, and then we also have a private forum where you can ask questions and get some answers from moderators. So that is that. And, um, oh, I also 
wanted to let you guys know that every single episode has show notes. So I think some people only think that when I mention it on here that you can get the show notes, but I, you know, sometimes I just record these blurbs at 11 o'clock at night or five in the morning. And sometimes I don't know what I'm saying, but yes, there's always show notes. So it's always bit.ly bit.ly forward slash SYP podcast. And then the three digit episode number. So this is episode 40. So that would be zero four zero. Um, so yeah, we do have some notes from Dr. Macht as well as some recommended resources and, um, a few papers that he's written, which are some really interesting papers. I'm so glad that, uh, somebody brought them to my attention. So I hope you guys can check them out if you work in critical care or really just generally interested in inpatient, patient centered care. So, um, those are over on the website and I wanted to mention, I have gotten like tons of compliments about the website lately and, it's totally not all me. Wish I could take credit for it. No, the website I had before the podcast, I created myself, but I cannot take uh, credit for this at all. Uh, the website is created by a company called Freshy Sites, and Freshy Sites is sponsoring this episode, and they are a really, really cool, fun company from Binghamton, New York, which is where I'm from. And if you guys remember, was it last summer? Yeah, it was last summer. Um, the April the Giraffe story. Is anybody totally familiar with that? Um, well, April's owner uh, is a kid that I went to high school with. So I remember um, I remember sitting home, you know, it was like a kid I went to high school with bought a giraffe and has a zoo and it was really cool. <laughs> so of course, me and all my friends are like glued to when April's going to give birth and you have to watch on the website. And I was like, this is a really cool website. I wonder who created it um, and found out that it was a local company just from Binghamton. So of course, I hit them up and they created this awesome website for me and they specialize in podcasting too. So I know a lot of people have reached out to me wanting to start their own podcast. So if you need an website to host it on, uh, Freshy Sites can take care of that for you. Uh, Freshy Sites website design is a fully in-house digital design and web development agency handcrafting beautiful websites each and every day. Through their responsive, hyper-attentive team and consistently fast turnaround, they've combined the very best in customer service with thoughtful custom web design and development, delivering a website that's user-friendly and perfectly representative of your company, practice, or organization. If you're looking for a company that will take the lead and do all the heavy lifting in designing or redesigning our website from logo creation to content writing to revisions and beyond, Freshy Sites is here for you. So let them take your online presence to the next level. They would love to work with you on your next web design product. So contact Freshy Sites today to get started. Um, and I will say I did actually use them for uh, logo design too. So people that think my logo's totally cool and I made it up, no, they did it for me. So, <laughs> so if you guys are looking for any of that, contact them. They're great, super helpful. And thanks to Freshy Sites for sponsoring this episode today. So I hope you guys enjoy hearing from Dr. Macht. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Thank you so much. Yes. All right. So this good we have Dr. Madison mocked with us. And I did a little blurb in the beginning about you, but if you want to tell the people who you are and why you're here. And well, thank you so much yeah, for inviting me. I appreciate it. I'm uh, a pulmonary critical care physician. I work in Denver, Colorado. Um, I've done my uh, initial uh, research when I was in pulmonary critical care fellowship in swallowing dysfunction and uh, the dysphagia that people experience when they're critically ill. And I take care of patients uh, and uh, I am excited to talk with you today. Yeah, yeah. So I think I first came across your name because we, uh, one of the previous episodes we were talking, oh, with Dr. Brodsky about post-extubation dysphagia. And he had referenced one of your papers, I think maybe 2011 paper, 
Um, and I started reading and I was like, wow, this is some really cool stuff. And then he said, I think he's talking at DRS this year. So I got a chance to listen to your presentation at DRS and it's like totally our speed. You know, I think, what was the title of it? When the, um, when the spit hits the fan. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so, so that's kind of what you're going to talk a little bit about to us today. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So the, uh, swallowing dysfunction in critically ill patients is, um, is very common and we do, um, a lot of things to people to make their swallowing worse when they become critically ill. Uh, probably most importantly, uh, we uh, put them on a ventilator. And for those in your audience who, you know, are, I think most people are familiar with a, a ventilator uh, and how it works, but the, um, the tube goes, you know, in your mouth, down through your, um, uh, you know, your, the front part of your mouth and into your throat. And uh, people are often on, you know, on ventilators for uh, about uh, three to four days, I think on average, the, you know, the, the countrywide average. And that time is enough time for people to have uh, significant uh, sensation difficulty and, um, and motor dysfunction and, and also uh, kind of uh, cognitive coordination problems uh, in swallowing. And that results in uh, when the tube comes out, it results in a very, uh, uh, probably a variable uh, difficulty in swallowing. One of the common questions we ask as uh, physicians, you know, and it happens for almost every patient when the tube comes out is, you know, when can they start eating? And some of my initial interest was in, you know, how do we answer that question? How do we answer it for the thousands of patients every morning who are extubated? Um, uh, so, uh, I could talk about the standards and, you know, what people do and from, a, you know, how people do that. But, um, of course there are other things that, you know, other than intubation, um, that, that affect people when they're critically ill. A lot of it is, as I mentioned, the cognitive part, you know, when people are sedated and they're on ventilators, they're delirious, um, that, that, prevents them from coordinating the swallowing reflux. Um, we uh, also take care of uh, sometimes healthy people that get sick, but oftentimes people who are already sick before they have, before they get that. And so that's the uh, people who have had strokes before or cancers and radiation and, um, it, to, that, that uh, causes people to have dysfunction as well. I just cared for a patient um, just two days ago uh, who had a uh, prior uh, radiation to his to his neck and uh, ended up having a total laryngectomy uh, because of uh, swallowing dysfunction. And it was uh, so. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think what is kind of most important here with what you first started out with saying was, you know, people are extubated or not extubated. People are intubated for about three to four days when they're extubated, you know, when can they swallow again? And I think I appreciate where you're coming from, especially you do have a background in swallow dysfunction, but you advocate to get that rolling. You know, I think sometimes as, as speech pathologists, we have these doctors that just almost don't even acknowledge that that's a huge hurdle. You know, it's, they don't even make the referral or they just, you know, send them off to the next level of care and it's not even really a priority. So, yeah, no, I think that's very important as I started kind of reading about this more and, and asking the questions, uh, the, um, 
you know, I think we're at the uh, awareness level of, uh, you know, of this illness, and that's um, that's important. I, I, I think uh, any anybody who's worked in the field realizes that there's um, a lot of uh, uh, maybe naysayers or people who don't think this exists or people who don't think about it, and that's. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's a that's a good place to be. We're yeah. we're educating the world. Yes, very much so. I'll never forget. I had a patient a few months back that, by the time he had gotten to the facility that I was servicing, he had been NPO for like forty eight days or something, and never even had a swallowing, you know, an assessment of any sort. Yeah. Um, you know, for he was intubated for like two days. It was like a short stint or something, and it, he just kept falling through the cracks, falling through the cracks, and finally somebody you know, caught him. So it's, it's just, I guess, mind blowing to me that it's not a priority for some people. So, yeah. I mean, we, if you tear your ACL and you get, um, you, you know, the first thing that you do uh, after your, you know, operation or even before is you get rehab yeah. of some sort and that, that physical therapy uh, of the uh, oropharynx is, is uh, something we should yeah, absolutely. My husband had hip surgery and I remember the next day he was on the bike and I was like, what? Like, this is mind blowing. But I mean, it's true. I mean, we got to get these people back to their, you know, prior level of functioning. So might as well throw them to the wolves, yeah. I guess. <laughs> so. Right. right. Yeah, well, it so, was inspi- oh, that was inspiring for me. Sorry. That was inspiring for me at DRS to remind myself how many, um, how many people are, uh, interested in, uh, in, the rehabilitation of it's, you know, your field is not just dietary modification. And it's a lot of it is the, you know, one-on-one working with people and developing their unique uh, exercise programs. So yeah. When I think talk about the awareness phase, I think that's kind of where we are is that, you know, some people have been doing these pretty intense rehab programs for swallowing for so long. And for some other people, they've been lost in the diet modification funk world for so long. And now all of a sudden, we're kind of coming out and saying, hey, yes, you know, as soon as they get off the tube, let's get them, you know, a study and get them rehabbed and back eating again. So, yes. Yeah. And I, I, my interest also stemmed a lot from just what interests patients. I mean, they're, that's the first thing they ask us, you know, um, especially I live in Colorado where it's very dry. The, um, the uh, cotton mouth and the, you know, the, the uh, dryness is such a component. And the first thing people always want is something, you know, some liquid that's quenchy, like a, a cold uh, Diet Coke or something. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and they'll ask you for it the first, you know, in the first two minutes after being activated. Yeah. So do you guys want to, do you want to talk a little bit about kind of what you guys do? You know, you said if they're intubated for three to four days, then you pull the tube. What's, you know, what's kind of your expectation of how soon they should be seen or. Right. No, that's a great question. Um, the, uh, you know, as if everything we do, the, the, what's right for patients and what patients are interested in is, is the, the first, normally the first thing we think about, um, the, uh, when patients are thirsty and hungry, uh, they want to be seen instantly. <laughs> and, uh, I think it, the industry standard is probably, uh, waiting, uh, at least a few hours, uh, for, before uh, evaluating, I would say just because, you know, this is happening, you know, I don't know exactly, but there's probably a hundred people in the country being extubated every five minutes or something like that. And, you know, certainly in in the IC where I work that, you know, extubations happen, you know, I mean, there's going to be at least four extubations in a day. Um, And so it's a lot of people and there's not quite as many 
uh, speech pathologist to see them in, within a few hours to see everybody. And so, um, and also I think um, there should be, um, it should be okay to have a, a, a more, uh, a screening test for, um, for swallowing dysfunction. And that a screening test should be uh, really uh, sensitive. Uh, it should uh, pick up, uh, you know, any amount of swallowing dysfunction. Um, uh, and therefore you can uh, essentially rule out those people who, who don't have swallowing dysfunction. And that's the same philosophy of any screening test. And so, um, so we use, you know, a couple different measures, but, you know, today, um, if I were going to work uh, and extubated somebody, the first thing we would do would be a, uh, essentially a water swallow test. I don't think it's done as uh, formally or, uh, you know, with the same protocol that it's always, that it's, you know, it's published, but essentially a, a, a cup of, uh, you know, half a, half a, styrofoam cup uh, of a uh, of ice water and then an attempt to swallow and then um, if the swallowing seems to go well then patients oftentimes you know quote pass that swallowing test and then they move on the nurses are quite good at where I work and they're uh, they're very uh, they're very good at um, they have a lot of experience with this and they're very uh, they're very uh, willing to say, you know, I, I, I don't feel comfortable with this swallowing and, and then, we, then we move on. Cool. Uh, people have to be pretty awake in order to start that test too. And it kind of dovetails nicely with extubation because in general, we try, you know, you try to extubate people when they're, they have the sensorium to, to cough and, and whatnot. So is that what you do too, Teresa? Yeah, you know, I don't work in critical care. I'm more in the, the long-term rehab setting. So it's interesting for me to hear, because um, I think we always gripe about things. You know, why didn't they do the water test, you know, right yeah. away? And right. you just answered my question, you know, sometimes they're completely delirious. So we're not going to give them water then, um, you know, and then before you know it, they're discharged the next day and they come to a, you know, facility that I service. And, you know, that's when we're all like, what happened here? <laughs> so um, we did have, um, I had a guest, Brenda, on a few episodes ago, and she's a SLP in, in critical care. And she kind of addressed all these things like, this is what happens when the patient doesn't get seen because they are delirious. They're not, you know, right. with it yet. So right. um, it's, I think it's just interesting for all of us to know at the different levels of care, what challenges we all face. You yeah. know, there is this picture perfect textbook way we should treat the patient, but I don't think any of us work in that picture perfect textbook <laughs> environment. Right. So right, no, exactly. And I think the uh, I think the what I find is helpful in those situations is honestly a risk benefit discussion with patients and their families about eating and, and swallowing. And uh, we have risk benefit discussions about every thing that we do. It just seems a little mechanical sometimes to do it about eating something they've done their whole life, but. Um, patients are thirsty and they oftentimes, you know, want to eat or drink. And, uh, and so we talk about the risks and it's nice that we combine in our training, we combine pulmonary medicine with critical care medicine, because the first next question is that of aspiration pneumonia. And, um, and so that's what, uh, um, that's what I often talk to them about. All right. Will you kind of get into that a little bit more about what you specifically talk to your patients about? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I would say the, you know, the, the more chronic aspirator, if you will, that, you know, that's a very common, um, problem, uh, amongst the patients that we care for. It's 
generally uh, older uh, population, generally patients who have um, developed uh, pneumonias before and, um, you know, and then they come in and they get really sick and they're having pneumonia and then they're intubated and then we remove the tube and then there, therein lies, you know, this discussion about, you know, how much can they eat, how much can they drink, and a lot of what I, uh, what I mentioned, maybe I don't lead with this, but a lot of what I mentioned is that we don't know exactly how much aspiration leads to pneumonia, and if I could predict the future about when they're going to develop the next pneumonia, I, I should probably be in Las Vegas or you something. Should. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just not, we just don't know, and so, um, you know, clearly the, the risk is developing an, an pneumonia. The, uh, the benefit of eating is pretty obvious though. I mean, it's, it's something that people have done their whole lives and is incredibly, incredibly, uh, important from a comfort and, uh, you know, re-engaging to their life. Uh, it's social, it's, um, and this is, you know, one of my, biggest interest it it dovetails with their fan their connection to their family um and uh family members have the the expectation or the idea when people are sick that eating is the cure and you know and we um michael pollan has said that you know in our country we have this unhealthy obsession with healthy eating you know but I, which is a slightly sarcastic way to say it, but, but the point is that we are really, really interested in how people eat and what we eat. And, and so anyway, um, I, I talk to patients about, um, uh, about the risks of pneumonias. I talk to them about the, the comfort that they might face. And then I lead that into a discussion, which we have with every patient about, you know, what to do if their heart stops and if they stop breathing. Yeah. I think I think I love I, I love 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 what you just said because I think I'm talking to a critical care doctor. He's going to tell us about all of the you know horrible effects of being NPO on the body, but instead you went right into the quality of life issues. And I think that you know as a medical field, that's so many things, so so much of what we need to consider. Um, you know, it's like we try to get all sciency and medical, <laughs> say this yes. is why it's good, this is why it's bad. But people just want to eat, like you said, people just want to eat with their families, and it's such a huge quality of life and social aspect. So, yeah, it's uh, it's something that I it's it's I'd like to call it patient centered care or or, yeah. which, or the you know the patient goal centered. Uh, the diff- patients have different goals, and um, and oftentimes, uh, yeah, we've just we've forgotten that. Uh, uh, that comfort is a really important and okay goal. And, yeah. uh, 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 many of my colleagues have used the phrase giving up um, when they talk about patients who choose uh, a more comfort-based approach. They say, oh, so they're giving up. They don't want everything. And uh, and my response would be they're not giving up and they want something. Um, it's just different than what you might think. There you go. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I think patient-centered care... Um, you know, I think we've, I don't want to say we've gotten far away from that, but it's like as the research evolves and the evidence-based practice, we just so much want to do what what we think is best for the patient and what the research says is the best thing we're supposed to do for them. But like you said, it may not, they may not have a care in the world about that. <laughs> yeah. 
we're we're very good at being paternalistic or, or maternalistic, you know, whichever one. It, it's we're very we're very uh, interested in in people listening to what uh, to what we say, uh, and, and I think that we could uh, use an ounce of uh, 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 we could step a little bit away from there. Yeah, yeah. I think as a speech pathologist, we've kind of been doing for so long, saying you know you can't eat now; it's so dangerous for you. Um, you know, I just I cringe when I hear SLPs or physicians say, you know, if you eat this, you'll die tomorrow. You know, we like you said, we don't know. We don't know the amount of aspiration it takes to, you know, cause aspiration ammonia and kill, uh, essentially kill somebody. But, um, you know, we have to take what, like you said, have those risk benefit conversations with them. And if it's that important to them and like you said, their comfort, then we have to honor the patient's wishes. Are they, um, is your job slightly easier if people are NPO because they don't end up suffering from a disease that's related to your intervention or uh, is that an odd, is it? That is an odd question, but. (laughs) No, and and, I mean, it's like me saying, uh, you know, uh, to the, to the patient who loves snowboarding, um, but they have, they're on a blood thinner. I say, yeah, no, you shouldn't snowboard because I don't want you to develop a brain bleed, meaning, you know, I don't want the intervention that I'm giving you to have caused a problem. Is that, does that happen? You know, I think, I think when I find someone that's MPO, you know, we're all in this because we want to help our patients eat. So I think we want to get them off of that for as fast as possible, you know, and I think now that we know a lot of the cons of feeding tubes and that they can be causing aspiration pneumonia themselves, um, you know, and what we know about saliva and swallowing and um, just in general, we want to get these patients, you know, eating and not NPO as long as possible. Yeah. So I, I kind of hate to see someone that's MPO. You know, we want to get them a swallow study. We want to get them doing exercises and, and really just eating something, whether it's even water or ice chips. You know, we want them doing something to exercise that mechanism and, and get it going as fast as possible. So. That's refreshing to hear because I think, uh, yeah, I think you know sometimes the uh, the idea of being uh, uh, NPO is uh, is it's, it just happens a little more frequently and, and than it should, and sh- we should almost that should almost not be on the table for a lot of patients because we know they're not gonna we know they're not gonna like it, right? And I and I just think too of the invasiveness of the surgery of getting pegged. You know, yes. I I'm dealing with a patient now that. He really weak, really fragile, really advanced age, and he did not want a feeding tube, and they ended up pegging him, and he's had so many complications from the surgery, and it's a whole complicated situation. But, um, you know, I th- that should have been, I think, the number one conversation, you know, is how serious the surgery can be for inserting a peg. Yes, exactly. And, they, and as you pointed out, the, the limits of preventing aspiration pneumonia, I think that's well described and uh something that doesn't always get airtime in the goal of care discussions um, that uh, a peg seems it's a logical fallacy that we think that it, uh, it prevents aspiration, but it doesn't always. Yeah. Yeah. This particular man has never had an aspiration ammonia. And since he's had the tube, he's had it three times. (laughs) So I think he's, he is my textbook case of what not to do. If your facility is looking to purchase a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP, please check out our sponsor, EndoHD. 
Uh, their compact fee system has a maneuverable design that provides convenience to do fees in more locations in the hospital, ICU, CCU, PICU, exam room, patient room. It's a highly maneuverable cart with integrated stereo audio, remote access for service. So contact endohd.com forward slash contact to discuss your specific fee systems requirements, pricing, or to request a live product demonstration. You know, the goal of care uh, discussion stuff is is the stuff that's the most interesting to me. You asked me to send a, an article. Yeah. The uh, This is uh, work um, by Jill Cameron and, and others in uh, Toronto. And I had a great time at the DRS um, because one of my colleagues uh, who, uh, who has done a lot of work in this came up to me and we chatted about this. And that um, I think um, uh, one of my... Uh, one of my idols when I was doing research is, was Margaret Herridge, who was did some of this work as well. Anyway, the point is that um, this work shows that patients' families are really affected by critical illness. And that, to me, is, is uh, one of the most important parts. I'm sure you see a lot of that in, in the uh, rehab world, right? Absolutely. That's- I mean, I, you know, I'll go in and I'll have just these, I, I can't imagine being on that side Um, But just, you know, these horribly emotional, you know, sobbing spouses, you know, and then I'll do the swallow test and tell them, you know, everything came out great. You know, they can start eating and then just the waterworks start, you know, it's just really heavy and and emotional. And I can't imagine that the burden that's weighing on them, you know, I'm glad that I can be the bearer of good news at those times. But right. Yeah. Yeah, no, that uh, to me, that um, that's probably the most important, uh, one of the most important parts of what we do is how do we communicate with families about this and, and talk to them and, and work with them. The, um, uh, so what, um, yeah, I think that the strategies to uh, effectively communicate with families, if I, uh, if I were to, uh, complete my career and have pushed the ball slightly uphill in that way, I would be, uh, I would be proud. That's awesome. That's so great to hear. What questions come up from speech pathologists about, um, I, well, I was asked a ton of them at the DRS, like, um, how come my colleagues don't talk about this? And why, you know, how do you talk about this and that kind of thing? You know, I get, is this something that, you know, because what's hard for speech pathologists is that it has to, the conversation has to come from the physician, basically, you know, we can kind of facilitate those goals of care conversations, but we don't really know all the, you know, we're just, this is what we cover, you know, we just cover swallowing. (laughs) So we don't know everything else that the patient is facing from a medical standpoint. So I guess, what kind of advice can you give speech pathologists to, help the physician to facilitate this conversation. That's not going to be, you need a feeding tube. We don't know when you're going to eat again. You may never eat again. If you go home and eat something, you'll die. You know, how do we have this more well-rounded patient centered, you know, goals of care conversation? That's a great question. Uh, You know, my first reaction is, is that uh, uh, they're the, the best discussions I've had about this, um, uh, involve uh, a meeting, uh, a fam- we call it a family meeting, uh, but there's also, there's a physician, there's a nurse. The nurses aren't always there, but I think it's really helpful when they are. And, and, and then therapists of all, of all types, quite frankly. I mean, uh, occupational therapists, physical therapists, speech language pathologists, um, case managers, that group of people to be involved in that meeting. So I guess the answer to your question is, um, you know, as 
physicians, we should be inviting speech pathologists to those meetings uh, more frequently. Uh, and, um, and then if the physician is leading the discussion about the overall picture in the medical situation, the speech language pathologist is the very important you know, color commentator, if you will, talking about that their one aspect and what exactly uh, they notice. Um, that would be my first uh, sense: is that is that we should those meetings should be more frequent. Um, I, you know, parenthetically, in my world, I find that we often talk about a family meeting as if it's um, the answer to a a challenging. Uh, patient family, like, oh, oh boy, we need to have a meeting, you know. No, no, we actually need to have meetings with everybody yeah, yeah. just to communicate what's going on. And it doesn't mean that the, we need to talk about a particularly weighty issue. It could just be getting information. And so um, you're right that it's hard to, it's hard one-on-one -on -one as a speech pathologist to dive into that. Um, but it, so I think that's where you're, field and my field are, are really inextricably linked to that we should be working together because a lot of physicians do not understand what, you know, what speech pathologists do. They don't understand how it works. They don't understand, you know, when it happens. They don't understand what the, what the goals are. Um, so. Right. I think that's, that's the hardest part is I have some physicians that are totally on my team <laughs> and I have others that just think I'm this alien from Pluto, you know, that I, like <laughs> nothing I say makes any sort of sense to them. So it's, it's a, it's a fine line to walk, but I've also advocated for some family meetings before that just don't even happen. So I think that's just such a disservice to the patient and the family too. And I, you know, I don't know, is it, because everybody's too busy or, you know, I just, I hate to say that we're too busy to get the patient's goals of care established, right. but you know, I, I guess what's the reality, you know, you are a critical care physician. Can you yeah. take time out to go to a, you know, a boardroom and have a family meeting? That's a very good question. I, um, I was really inspired, um, when I was a, a medical student and resident by a physician who, you know, back, you know, worked when the dinosaurs walked the earth and was this like, <laughs> you know, godlike figure. And, um, and when I researched his life more, I realized that he spent like two and a half hours, three hours with every patient. And I thought, that's just not realistic in this day and age. And it just isn't. And um, it still is not realistic. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I think that's just culturally and the way medicine is structured, we're not going to end up spending that much time with patients. So how do we make it work? In, in, you know, in, in this day and age, how do we make it work that patients are getting their answers, you know, to challenging problems, we're having effective communication. Um, uh, pro so probably, uh, um, probably, uh, it's a good question that in my world, the domain of the palliative care physician um, is, uh, is this domain, it's, uh, they have, it seems that they have uh, more more time to address these specific issues. So I don't know if that means we should be involving more uh, palliative care physicians. I think uh, probably is a, a role for debulking, uh, debulking the busiest uh, critical care physicians to uh, have a teeny bit more time to, to lead some of these discussions. I don't know if physician extenders, nurse, you know, nurse practitioners, physician assistants is a, is a way to move into that so more discussions can be held. Um, 
I don't know. In my in in my job tomorrow, I have enough time to to sit down with families for for twenty minutes. That's for sure. And I'm yeah, just happy about my job. Uh, but um, it's a good question. Yeah, it it is. I, and I know it's tricky. I know there's no black and white answer. But I think you know what you say as far as physician extenders too. I have a couple nurse practitioners that have just been giving me so much trouble. You know, the physicians love what we do from you know swallowing standpoint but the nurse practitioners are so resistant to it. So if I had to have a nurse practitioner in one of those meetings, I would probably cringe, but <laughs> why are they, they resistant? Or just resistant? They just what they don't know about dysphagia. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, everybody should be on a feeding tube. And if, you know, you aspirate once you're going to die, you know, just all these myths that I can, yeah. I, I, I'm pretty sure I brought in, I'm not even joking. It was probably about six inches high, a stack of research <laughs> to this <Yeah>. one. <laughs> And she just said, you know, I don't care how much research you bring in, you know, that, that's not what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about them not aspirating. And I was like, well, yeah. but you're not listening to me. Right. <laughs> and and right. I think that's what's so hard is, you know, the physician even understands and tries to explain that to the, to the NP, yeah. but. Maybe we, you know, because our fields are, are, this field is so, you know, relatively poorly understood by everybody, maybe we should. Um, develop like a top 10 list of, you know, the top 10 myths of dysphagia and the critical care or rehab yeah, settings, you know, what are, what's happening, what's not happening, um, you know, what's important to patients, how to start, you know, that would be, I think that would be really helpful. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, so I guess talking about myth busting, can you kind of go into what you, this is really off topic so we can get back on yeah. topic in a no, bit, but it's, it's um, what, what you consider to be like that window of post extubation time. I know um, when I was talking with Dr. Brodsky, there's like this unwritten 24 hour rule, but there's right. really no research to support that we have to wait 24 hours, Definitely you know, and sometimes not, that yeah. 24 turns into 48, turns into 72 for, you know, no reason right. other than staffing issues. Right. So no, that's a great question. Yeah, I mean, I think the twenty-four hours just stems from uh, the uh, it being the, you know, the measurement of a day and the idea that um, we shouldn't get frustrated with speech pathologists if if they don't show up for a day. It's it's just hard to come to the bedside that quickly. Um, but um, yeah, I think the evaluation could happen as soon as patients are awake, um, and I think that it the pre-existing state of health is the most powerful predictor of their, you know, whether they're going to have uh, significant dysphagia subsequently. So, you know, my 16-year-old trauma patient who I'll see, you know, uh, is uh, who they probably are not going to have a significant amount of post-extubation dysphagia. Um, so um, they could be evaluated, you know, minutes after they're extubated and I think that would be fine um, um yeah and then and then I think probably I mean one of the questions is how long does post-extubation dysphagia last you know when does it become this is the reality of your you know illness I think you and I have both seen patients who had a had a big illness for whatever reason, and then they present to us, you know, later because they can't uh, they can't swallow or they have pneumonia or something else happens. Um, so it probably lasts, um, uh, you know, it, it probably lasts a long time depending on what you know the the cause of it. Um, yeah, the the term uh, post extubation dysphagia is more. Uh, um, it's a more nebulous term because you know we can have it at any uh, at any point in there. 
Um, does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah, totally. Can you kind of, that kind of, I had a light bulb go off in my head about your yeah. talk at DRS. Um, and you were kind of talking about, you know, different symptoms of post-extubation dysphagia. And as a physician, what you try to do to kind of prevent some of those from happening. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think, uh, uh, so good, well, probably the most important thing is to limit the amount of time they're on a ventilator. And okay. that's, uh, there's nobody, uh, that's the job of the intensivist, you know, the pulmonary critical care or, or, you know, the intensive care doctor who's, who's caring for the patient is, um, uh, you know, decreasing sedation and uh, as, as per their protocol and getting the tube out as soon as, as soon as we can. That's probably the most important thing. Um, uh, oral care during their extubate, their intubation period is important. Um, and, um, uh, you know, just to prevent uh, mouth injuries and, and all that. Uh, the sensorium is probably the most important part. And that's a, that's another cultural phenomena. Um, there in fellowship, we read it, there's a, wonderful paper in uh, Denmark done, uh, where uh, the sedation that no uh, sedatives were used. It was just mild analgesia and, uh, and a, I called it a greeter, but a, a person, you know, like the greeter in Walmart or yeah. the concierge in, in a hotel who just comes over and, and checks on you. Um, you know, when our nursing ratios are, are greater one to four, then oftentimes, you know, their sedation becomes more important because uh, of risk of pulling out tubes unexpectedly and all that kind of stuff goes up. So limiting sedation, limiting the amount of time on a ventilator, uh, and then, um, uh, yeah, probably uh, there's a big component of uh, starting slow when people start eating. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody's uh, wants to consume something when that tube is out, but I would argue that it's it's water and it's for some reason fizzy water. I'm not sure why, but they want to consume. It's the thirst that drives it, and it's the feeling of the dry kind of mouth that has crusty, you know, junk yeah. in it from the tube. That's the thing. That's it's not the that overwhelming feeling of hunger. I mean, it's not like people say, "I the tube comes out," and they say, "I really need it." A chicken fried steak. Yeah. I mean, they, yeah. they, they just want like apple juice or or diet coke or or something like that. Um, so I think starting a little bit more slowly, it's also probably less risky to aspirate your uh, your lacroix, um, you know, water as opposed to your uh, you know large Thanksgiving dinner. Yes. Um, yes. So. Yes. Um, so this is kind of like a really silly question, but I know that we talk about it a lot. I, we think of some of these, you know, we get some of these patients with post-extubation dysphagia and they may have like a completely, um, you know, collapsed vocal cord or something, you know, and we joke like, oh my gosh, how did the physician like extubate this patient? Did they just rip it out of nowhere? You know, so <laughs> is, is there, you know, I, I'm sure there's a science to intubating and extubating someone, but yeah. is there complications and other things that make it more difficult on other yes. patients? Great question. Great question. Um, you know, I don't know if this is scientific, but probably the, the the injuries probably happen when when the tube goes in, as opposed to when it's pulled out. And that's just because it's a um, pulling it out is a relatively easy thing. Putting it in is challenging. 
and it's part of the reason I, I'm interested in this field or I got interested in this field is I, I did, you know, I was around the time when, when it didn't go in, go in so well, uh, you know, and I was a wide eyed medical student and, and just thought I want, this is challenging. This is life, you know, very important. And this is what I want my life's work to be. And it's, um, it's just challenging. It never is easy. And if it is easy, um, and if you don't have a twinge of worry every time a, a tube goes in somebody's mouth, then you probably haven't done enough. Um, so, you know, and specifically, it's that you, uh, you know, oftentimes the anatomy is favorable, but those rare times when it's not, um, you have a relatively short period of time to get this tube in there. Um, the damage is probably caused more by the blade, the laryngoscope blade, as opposed to the tube itself. Um, not always the case, but the tube is, you know, is relatively smooth plastic, but the blade um, is, you know, you have to move everything out of the way. So um, that's, uh, you know, intubation injuries are the realm of uh, anesthesia, malpractice lawyers I, I think and you know that's a that's a it happens it's a, yeah. it's a common thing there's some data that cardiac surgery is more uh you know slightly more prone to those and that's could be because they use transesophageal probes that go down or could be the surgeries are longer it's just more intense surgery um i think that's an area we should be researching more for sure you know how to uh how to how that happens but the point is and we kind of forget that every time we do this i mean this is like a really invasive thing we do yeah yeah you know I, i've done a couple of fees on some patients and i'll get down there and you know I'll be talking to the speech pathologist that's doing you know the daily therapy with them and i'm like what kind of nothing is significant here that jumps out at me you know as far as patient history what they went through you know and i was like do they have surgery where they you know intubated and she's like oh yeah and it's like, well, that makes a whole lot more sense now with, you know, what we're seeing yeah. as far as kind of laryngeal injury. It's something that I think a lot of speech pathologists aren't aware of is could be what's causing this dysphagia for this patient. Because sometimes it's just like nothing seems to add up. Um, so how did this patient end up in this predicament? And I think that's one thing that we need to be more cognizant of that. Yes, this can happen. And this is how it happened. And yeah, the yeah. I have a, a friend who is a, a singer, an opera singer, and she, um, I think I was explaining to her the, um, uh, I realized that, you know, when I was uh, more well slept, my vocal cords worked better. And she looked at me like I was crazy, like, do you, is this like a new thing that you realize that the health of your vocal cords is like important and that they're relatively um, delicate and high functioning, you know, a piece of equipment um, and you know, so yeah, I mean, they're, the damage that can come from a vocal cord is, um, you know, they're, they're pretty darn important. I think that's what separates us from other, you know, uh, species is our ability to think and, and uh, communicate with our voice. Uh, and it's, they're just two little pieces of tissue that can be, right. <laughs> can raise a lot of hell if they're, yeah, yeah. 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 That's so interesting. Thank you. Yeah, yeah my pleasure. I think we're on to something with the, uh, the, the myth busting and the, uh, the, the combination of our fields. I mean, it's like, to me, it seems like peanut butter and jelly. I mean, right. it's like it goes, to, <laughs> it goes together so well. Um, and the, um, you know, it's part of the reason DRS was so much fun for me is because 
uh, I mean, this is something I've been doing for a long time. And I mean, it's not like I'm unique in the, um, in the world. I mean, there's a lot of doctors who are doing exactly what I'm doing. Uh, it just happens that I have this portal into an alternative, you know, discipline. And then all of a sudden we're like, yeah, our disciplines are really complementary. Yeah. Um, so, um, uh, but I think, I think that more of that will be helpful for our, our fields. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's also very, you, you have a very nice and fun group of people that it was probably more fun than, than the doctors that I worked uh, with. <laughs> yeah, no, DRS was a lot of, a lot of fun this year. Was that your yeah. first time going? Yeah, it was my first time. It cool. Was yeah, no. Did great. you know that it existed or were you invited or no? No, I didn't know. I mean, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know. That's I mean, okay. I knew well, yeah. I ended up knowing a lot of the people there and the work yeah. they did. I just didn't know that that particular conference existed. But, you know, Martin um, invited me and he, um, yeah, he, he found, he contacted me. And honestly, my initial response was, no, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I, I do get, you know, it sounds like I'm self important, but I mean, I get asked to do things that aren't yeah, quite yeah. as. Fancy as that, but you know, yeah. I get asked to do a lot of things, and I'm like, um, no, thank you. You know, I'm I'm not going to do that. Um, and uh, and so that was my initial reaction when I didn't really know about it. And um, but then he was like, no, no, this is really cool. And then um, for me, the the fascinating part, and I, again, I think this is we're onto something here. Is the is the this goal of care discussion, which. You, seems second nature to you it seems important to you it seems second nature and important to me but there's a lot of people for that they don't get so many yeah so many to me that's just it's an opportunity it's an opportunity for us to to really help I mean I feel like if I were to you know if my life's work would be to uh, assist other physicians and other people in this field to to understand how to care for the patient in a more patient-centered way um that would be okay yeah I, um, yeah i took care of a doctor who was sick um and she had a kidney transplant and she um she was she worked a lot and she didn't take her medicines always her rejection medicines and she ended up uh getting uh, you know, her kidney started failing because she didn't take the rejection medicines and she did not want another transplant. And, you know, this is a doctor who's talking to other um, doctors and saying, you know, I, I don't want a transplant. And, you know, people know that if you don't get a transplant, you don't get dialysis, then you live for five days and then you die. And she was, you know, you know, relatively young and she, um, you know, people said to her, you know, why did you want to do this? I mean, she didn't, she wasn't committing suicide. She just knew that they, she didn't want to have that care. And, um, and she just, she told me like, you know, Madison, this is what, um, you should just let patients do the things that they want to do for her in her value system. Although it's different than our value system, you know, it's, that's okay. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that's so fascinating. I also help, um, administrate a Facebook group and, you know, people will write, you know, what should I do with this patient? And immediately someone will chime in and say, well, what does the patient want? And it's like, well, the patient wants this, this, and this. So, well, there's your answer, you know? Right. And then, you know, I think we've kind of been, we've been brainwashed and pushed too far in the other side of the spectrum that we have to be cautious and, you know, be careful of legal issues. And, you know, and I just always think that, you know, a patient's never going to get upset if we honor their wishes. 
Right. You know, as much as we can push what we believe is the best thing, but no patient's going to get upset for making their own decisions. Exactly. Yes. So I don't think we have to worry about, you know, the big, bad legal issues if we do exactly what the patient has said they've wanted their whole life. <laughs> exactly. So. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Jehovah's Witness patients, or I mean, any faith that um, in, in our world has different, you know, faith traditions, but I think Jehovah's Witness uh, the Jehovah's Witness face as an important uh, role because it's the most seem- seemingly the most common and the most uh, uh, it just, the, uh, the avoidance of, of blood transfusions is so prevalent um, and it comes up you know you know monthly or something that there is somebody who has Jehovah's Witness who is a Jehovah's Witness who's bleeding and and there the amount of um, discussion that goes into that and what it is that their belief system, whether that's seemingly okay. And of course it's okay. It's, it's a, uh, it's just different, different patients have different views and yeah, that should allow us to, um, yeah, to give a patient centered approach. You actually inspired me. I I'm very serious. You inspired me to, uh, start a podcast about this, not, but the, uh, it was the first thing when you told, when you came up to me and talked to me, I thought, oh my gosh, like, this is really interesting stuff. And I mean, I realized that having a podcast is a really fun adjunct to your day-to-day job. Yeah, I I don't have to do anything. I just turn on the computer and you talk to me. Like, like, I love love the blogs that I write and stuff, but those took me forever. You know, like I was so anal about what I would write and make sure that every, you know, because then the grammar police is after you if you miss one comma. And right. like, it, just, it took so much time. So when I started podcasting, I'm like, this is so easy. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, I talked to my friends. They, um, they're, I have a friend in emergency medicine who's, uh, um, he, he runs, I didn't know this, he runs a podcast. Uh, I think it's called the Emergency Medical Minute. And um, he's been doing it for some time. And he said, oh, yeah, like this, we should totally do this. Mine would be about, patient-centered care. I mean, it's in our world, it's kind of called palliative care sometimes, um, but it's not only palliative. It's it just, it just, and I don't love the word patient-centered. It's something Why? else. Um, it just seems like an awkward word. I mean, I, I, it's the, I want something sexier or flowier that, yeah, you know, yeah. a different word, but yeah. I just think you, you get what it means when you say yeah, that. That's why that's I like it. Word. Cause I think yeah. palliative, a lot of people don't know what it means. And then some people immediately assume that it means hospice. Exactly. And like you said, you know, okay, so they just want to die. They're letting go, you know, and no, yeah. that's not what's happening here. Right. So yeah, it's, it's, it's patients, pa- yeah. Patient centered care, the patient centered care podcast, you know, whatever. And the, uh, and, and I would talk to, you know, people, I mean, like this, and we'd have discussions like this about swallowing, but also about other things. I mean, we could, I mean, heck, we could talk about the Jehovah's Witness question or the, uh, the whatever it is that that's the type of medicine that, uh, that we should be practicing. That's, so you inspired me. And oh, good. I, I appreciate that very much. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, and I, I honestly think it makes our job easier, the patient-centered approach. You know, yeah. why... Why should we try to throw the kitchen sink at the patient when they have no interest in, you know, there's this risk and there's this risk, or we could try this strategy or this right. therapeutic technique, and they really could give two craps about that. It's you particularly <laughs> important. Yeah, it totally. It's particularly important for age, the aging population, like as, as you know, everybody gets older and the baby boomers and all that stuff. I mean, it will become really, really important. Um, you know, geriatric medicine seems to... 
they talk a lot about, you know, how many drugs you're on and the idea of being on too many drugs is a problem just for like setting out your pill bottles. Like it's just too complicated. Um, so they seem to have gone into this idea of like, Hey, like we can tailor our care, not based on only based on the evidence, but also based on what things of that a, a patient is, is really fits their life. Um, I have a buddy who's a critical care doctor who uh, conducted a wedding in the ICU. I mean, that was the most important thing to the family. And I mean, he wheeled the patient, you know, on a ventilator over and they, you know, were part of the, and, you know, it violated all these hospital rules, I'm yeah. sure. And he's <laughs> like, that's okay. I mean, this, the goal is that they right. want to have a, a wedding and then, you know, and that's, that's their most important thing. So, um, Yeah. Yeah, I, I know it's so hard when we have to kind of push back against the red tape in order to get the patient what they want. Right. You know, I know a lot of these facilities that I work in, you know, like you said, they just want some water. They just want some ice chips. And it's like they want you to sign a waiver and they want you to do all this, you know, legal cons consent. And it's like, no, they don't have to. Like right. this is they're they're allowed to make, you know, decisions for themselves. And we document the conversation and get on with it, you know. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, cool, Teresa. I appreciate yeah. you. Um, you let me know if, if any questions come up and I will do the same. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you very much, Teresa. It's a pleasure. And uh, I look forward to talking again. Sometimes. All right. Sounds good. Have a good okay. day. You too. Bye. Bye. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.